Pod Save the World is brought to you by Tommy John. With the summer weather heating things up, I've got a question for you, Kim Jong-un. How are your old cotton boxers holding up? Are they a little soggy and kind of damp like a swamp? If Singapore gets warm this time of year. Let's face it, they just weren't designed to handle all that sweat. That is why you need upgraded underwear from Tommy John, the revolutionary clothing brand that's redefined comfort for people everywhere, including Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. They combine lightweight, breathable fabrics with patented designs for what can only be described as the quote, perfect fit, end quote. And they're wedgie proof. Important when you're meeting with a dictator or a six foot two orange monster. You'll never have to worry about that swampy feeling because Tommy John's moisture wicking fabrics pull perspiration right off your body and their cool cotton fabric dries four to five times faster and keeps you two to three times cooler than traditional cotton. Plus, all of Tommy John underwear is backed by the best pair you'll ever wear or it's free guarantee. Stay cool and comfortable all summer long with Tommy John. No adjustment needed. Hurry to tommyjohn.com slash world for 20% off your first order. That's tommyjohn.com slash world for 20% off your first order. tommyjohn.com slash world. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I am broadcasting live from Pyongyang, where I, I accidentally went for several days thinking the summit was here. I'm just kidding. We're still in Los Angeles. It has been a weird, weird couple of days. Donald Trump went to Singapore. He met with Kim Jong-un. They had a summit about whether or not the world will end in nuclear annihilation. It seems to have gone maybe okay because nothing really bad happened. But I decided to get a real bona fide expert on the phone to help me figure it out. You guys have heard from Kelly Magsman before. She's over at the Center for American Progress running their national security and international policy. But she's worked at the White House on the National Security Council. She worked at the Pentagon. Uh, She's worked on North Korea policy. She's worked on China policy. She's one of the smartest people I know, period. And we talked through the whole thing, the substance, what wasn't in the agreement, the optics, and what the hell happens next. So I think you guys will really enjoy hearing from Kelly. She is funny and smart as hell and very worth your time. So here's the interview. Will he shake the hand of peace and enjoy prosperity like he has never seen a great life or more isolation? Which path will be chosen? Just kidding. That wasn't the interview with Kelly. That was from a movie trailer Donald Trump literally made to play in his bilateral meeting with Kim Jong-un. Here is Kelly. Kelly, thanks again for being with me. Great to be here. So this morning, Trump tweeted... Just landed, long trip, but now everybody can feel much safer than the day I took office. There is no longer a nuclear threat from North Korea. Meeting with Kim Jong-un was interesting and very positive experience. North Korea has great potential for the future. Kelly, are you going to sleep well tonight? Did he bring all the nukes home with him on Air Force One? (laughs) Peace on Earth, my friend. Peace on Earth. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's interesting uh, that he sort of has this standard of success in his mind. I kind of want to rage about it, but... North Korea has like 60 nuclear weapons, up to 60 nuclear weapons. It's got it can has enough fissile material to essentially which is the stuff you need to make nuclear weapons. He has enough of that to do 6 a year. He's got 11 different types of ballistic missiles including intercontinental ballistic missiles that can mm-hmm. range the United States. So, Kim Jong-un still has all of that that he had the day before the summit, the day after the summit. So, right. I'm personally very confused by the president's tweet. I think either he has uh, delusions of unicorns and puppy dogs in the morning uh, mm-hmm. for breakfast, or his advisors are briefing him badly, or he's just trying to message uh, success to his base because he realizes 
uh, that he came back pretty much empty handed. Yeah. I mean, or I think more most likely is that he's sort of full of shit and he wants to put on a good show <laughs> for the various people watching at home and in the media and realizes that we have tiny attention spans these days and the details will never get covered as thoroughly as the main event. But totally. some key important context here. I mean, this is not the first time the North Koreans have said they would work toward the complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. They agreed to hotlines and arms pullbacks with the South Koreans in 92. They agreed to halt plutonium production with the Clinton administration in 94. In 2005, they said they'd abandon all nuclear weapons and existing nuclear programs in return, you know, and continue a process to, to get us to a treaty. They said they would agree to International Atomic Energy Agency safeguards. So in all of those instances, they said they would do the same, if not more, than what they apparently agreed to in Singapore but they never did it, right? Right. I mean, the challenge with the North Koreans is always the follow-through, the verification of the things they've promised to do, and that's usually where all of these agreements with the North Koreans fall apart. I mean, President Trump is not the first American president to secure a diplomatic agreement with North Korea. Uh, He may be the first president to secure one of the worst diplomatic (laughs) agreements with North Korea thus far. I mean, if you go and look at the language on this agreement, it's in some places actually weaker than prior agreements. Hmm. So it's much more general. I think my biggest worry about the declaration is the issue on denuclearization. Mm -hmm. And the way that it's framed in the document, it refers to, you know, North Korea will work towards complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. For the North Koreans, that's a different definition than what the United States has. For the North Koreans, that includes... Everything from the U.S. extended deterrent in Asia, that's, you know, fancy speak for a nuclear umbrella, to U.S. forces on the peninsula. So my concern at this stage is that Trump, maybe not necessarily understanding the true details of the different definitions, feels he came out of that room with a pretty good understanding. But North Korea is coming out of the room with a very different understanding. And if you send your negotiating teams to then, at that point, begin discussions without a sort of agreed idea about what you're working towards, that's a recipe for disaster down the line. And I think it potentially could collapse the talks. Yeah. And like that, that has been the thing that experts have been screaming about the whole time, that these terms were sort of made up for the North Korea challenge. And they mean very different things to our side and to the North Korean side. I think they were designed to give both sides a little bit of political space and wiggle room to sell things back home or to feel okay about what they agreed to. But pinning that stuff down is really, really important, right? <laughs> it's really important. I mean, I think Mike Pompeo's job uh, is going to be a lot harder uh, because of it. Now, listen, I mean, the good news is that we have a process, a diplomatic process that has begun uh, and that the Trump administration is going to put its political weight behind this process. Clearly, the president of the United States is bought into it uh, on the front end. So in that sense, it's good. So there's part of me that struggles, I'll be honest, (laughs) between like this feeling of, well, thank God we are not in fire and fury land. But on the other hand, I feel like this is a basically a process potentially set up for failure. And we could easily find ourselves back in fire and fury land because of that. And so I just struggle with, you know, how much to give him credit when I feel like at the end of the day, it was a relatively empty agreement And that the summit was essentially a huge spectacle and a giving up of massive leverage on the front end by the president of the United States, not just the summit itself, which gives Kim Jong-un the status of a nuclear power, but the comments he made about exercises that you alluded to, et cetera. I mean, he really just kind of 
blew his wad right up front uh, at the beginning of the process. And so I'm just worried about how this plays out. Yeah. I mean, I'm sort of with you. Like one, I think that, you know, big picture, I'm glad they're talking to. It's hard to call that an accomplishment because I think that almost any of the previous North Korean leaders would have agreed to talking with any U.S. president, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, George H.W. Bush, or George Bush, George H.W. Bush, if they had so agreed as well. But, you know, Trump was the first one to jump to do it. I'm glad, like you, that he is talking about talks and not still tweeting about, you know, blowing everybody up. But I'm struggling with this, too, because I think, like, our side's a little more intellectually honest. I think we prioritize (laughs) diplomacy over military options. But, like, when people are saying, well, talks are better than war... We should be happy that Trump pulled us back from the brink of war. He brought us to the brink of war. There was no totally. need to tweet about fucking fire and fury until he decided to do it because he was in a bad mood or say it at a press conference. Totally. I mean, you know, you could make the argument that some of the tweeting and the rhetoric is part of what we call a coercive diplomacy, which you basically try to convince your adversary that the other options are far more negative <laughs> for him. But I think it's important to remember that diplomacy is really a means to an end. It is not uh, an end in and of itself. And in in the case of North Korea, I think there is a false choice between this idea that if we don't have diplomacy, we're going to have war. We haven't had war with North Korea for decades. Uh, We've got a pretty strong nuclear deterrent. I mean, we have, you know, thousands of (laughs) nuclear weapons. They have only up to 60. I mean, I think we have to be clear eyed about the fact that there are options short of going to war, deterrence, containment other policy options that are are not just accepting a bad deal versus going to war. Mm-hmm. Part yeah. of me thinks, I mean, I think, you know, I, I was thinking this morning and I, as I was reading the president's tweets uh, that, you know, yeah, it's, it's basically a non-deal. And maybe a non-deal is is not that bad. It's better to have a nothing burger versus a shit burger. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so there's part of me that's like, okay, so clearly Trump, you know, thinks this is a good deal. I did a great job. And then he's going to move on from this. I sort of think, I sort of feel like just like JCPOA, the Iran agreement, you know, he, he blew it up. He's moved on from it. You don't hear about it anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, and the Europeans are currently trying to save the Iran deal uh, with the Iranians to basically contain Trump. Mm-hmm. So part of me is wonders if you can do the same on North Korea. Um, basically, like his negotiating teams now pick up the ball. They try to make progress. They kind of keep it as far away from him as possible, <laughs> as much as that's possible. Yeah. And he just kind of moves on. Like, that's my my hope yeah, me too. <laughs> in some ways. He clearly likes to do this as like TV episodes, though. So that that worries me because I think he, he had the episode in Singapore. He's going to do – he wants to have the episode in, in the White House. Maybe he has the episode in Pyongyang. Like, he, he does foreign policy by television episode. So – I think we could come back to this again with him. Potsy of the World is brought to you by Movement. Movement is dropping all new sunglasses to get you ready for the warmer weather. The guys at Movement don't just make great watches, guys. They make awesome sunglasses, and they just released a ton of new styles. Here's my problem with sunglasses. I got all these cheap pairs that look crappy, and every time I buy a nice pair for a couple hundred bucks, I feel like I get ripped off, and I inevitably lose them. Our friends at Movement, yeah, the watch guys, we're tired of all the cheap pairs of sunglasses that look terrible, and we're tired of being ripped off by the expensive ones, so they thought, screw it. Let's make quality, trendy sunglasses at a fair price. They are not just plastic, they are acetate, so you get the polarized, and they start at just 70 bucks. They are my go-to shades. 
last time I wore mine, I was in Singapore with Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, and we were looking out over a beautiful vista or a veranda, and Kim turned to me and said, you look great. And I was like, these things fit great. And I was like, well, they're polarized, so I can't see uh, you know, any of the other crappy stuff. And then Trump was like, what are you guys talking about? And we we're like, oh, he's so annoying. Like He always just butts in our conversations. But get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to mvmt.com slash crookedworld. That's mvmt.com slash crookedworld. You guys know movement. You know they revolutionized the watch industry. Now it's time to check out their sunglasses. Go to mvmt.com slash crookedworld. Join the movement. Pod Save the World is also brought to you by Policy Genius. If you have a car, you have car insurance. If you have a home, you have home insurance. If you are alive, shouldn't you have life insurance? Good point. Four to 10 people don't have life insurance at all, and it's not their fault. It is life insurance's fault. Shopping for life insurance sucks. It's confusing. It can take forever. But Policy Genius made it easy. Policy Genius is the easy way to compare life insurance online. In just five minutes, you can compare quotes from the top insurers to find the best policy for you. And when you compare quotes, you save money. It is just that simple. In fact, Policy Genius has helped over 4 million people shop for insurance and placed over $20 billion in coverage. They don't just make life insurance easy. They also compare disability insurance, renter's insurance, and health insurance. So if you care about it, they can cover it. If you've been putting off getting life insurance, don't put it off any longer. It has never been easier to buy, and rates are at a 20-year low. Go to policygenius.com. It's the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. So the realest part of the deal, as best I can tell, is the pause on these joint military exercises. Let's talk about that for a minute. Sure. We do lots of big military exercises with the South Koreans. We have 28,500 troops, U.S. service members on the Korean Peninsula. I was wondering if you could talk about what the exercises are for a minute, because some experts I talk to say... These are really important. These guys need constant training to stay prepared. Readiness is key. And the South Korean troops are kind of green. They're conscription, a lot of them. So it's even double as important for them. Others say, yeah, you know what? These exercises are kind of provocative. We could pause on them or ditch them for a while and probably not lose out on a bunch of readiness. Where do you land on that? What's your take on whether these are important? Listen, they are, but they're very important. But I also think that it's a place that we can adjust. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's unreasonable for us to suspend some of the bigger exercises as long as productive negotiations are ongoing. Right. We've done, we've actually done that before. It's not that new of an idea. Freeze for freeze. Uh, I believe. Yeah, essentially it's a freeze for, they freeze their tests, they freeze their uh, nuclear tests and ballistic missile testing while we freeze sort of the big high end exercises. And that's like um, flying big bombers over to test run bombing or, or ships in the sea. Like what kind of stuff is that? So we have so we have two sort of big exercises. We have Old Chief Freedom Guardian, which is cool in name. August, which is coming up, which is a f- terrible name. Uh, I just think <laughs> of like sea urchins for some reason. I don't okay. know why it's not. It doesn't say sea urchin. I think Old Chief. <laughs> anyway, Old Chief Freedom Guardian is one of the bigger exercises. That's a late summer exercise. That's a pretty massive exercise. Then in the spring, we have Full Eagle and Key Resolve also ridiculous names, that involve, you know, amphibious landings and all sorts of things. So they're pretty significant. They involve thousands of troops, months and months of planning. They are really important for the South Koreans. They're really important to ensure that our forces can be ready to, what we say, fight tonight on the peninsula. Because, you know, Korea is really far away. (laughs) So if war breaks out, our forces on the peninsula need to be ready to fight. So in terms of readiness, it is important because if we're not ready for all contingencies, you're going to have a higher number of U.S. casualties. So you may readiness will definitely go down. 
I think it only goes down if they're suspended for a long period of time. So I do think there is space to sort of test this diplomacy and see if we can get it going. That's not the part that bothered me (laughs) about what he said. What bothered me was he called them provocative, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is basically adopting North Korean language. And China's language. And China's language. And like, frankly, Russia's language. So, you know, he basically internalized the language of our adversaries as it relates to our defensive exercises. You know, what I find provocative is, you know, North Korean missiles flying over Japan and landing in the sea, you know, in the Sea of Japan like that. I find that provocative. Mm -hmm. So it's strange to me that he sort of internalized this. So if you're if you're like Russia, if you're Vladimir Putin right now and you've got the NATO summit coming up in July, like, of course, they're going to start talking about, well, you know, American and NATO exercises, they're provocative to us, too. And like Trump, I just I find it very disconcerting. (laughs) Yeah, he called him provocative. I think he also used the words inappropriate and expensive. And expensive is his go-to. And sure, it is absolutely expensive to have a a large standing army. But, you know, (laughs) kind of part of the deal being commander in chief, right? It's kind of the deal. And you know what? You know what? It's a lot more expensive. American casualties. Very true. Very true. It's bothersome to me. And I think for a lot of us, you know, who see the North Korea challenge in a broader context, uh, vis-a-vis our adversaries like China and Russia, uh, he just keeps giving them gifts. Yeah. So. yeah, and I don't know how you walk back that language if you decide to restart them. Nick Kristof of the New York Times talked about what wasn't in the deal at those interesting column. He said, there's nothing about freezing plutonium and uranium programs. There's nothing about destroying ICBMs. There's nothing about returning inspectors to nuclear sites. We didn't get a full inventory of their nuclear program. That's something people are talking about a lot that I think is important to understand. There's no timetable or verification steps or clear pledge to halt testing. I guess Pompeo today said he wants to see the process started by the end of Trump's first term. But most experts talk about a decades-long process. I mean, were, were you worried about that that sort of basket of issues that Kristoff wrote about or the broader timetable question? Yeah, I do I do worry about it. I mean, I, I do think, however, that those kinds of details will come through in the discussions mm-hmm. that Pompeo will start, uh, I assume, next week. The president said he was starting next week. So some of those details will, will come out. But those are the big key details. I think first and foremost is actually getting a full scoping and understanding of the North Korean nuclear program. We have good intelligence, but we don't know everything. And it's right. going to be essential that up front, just like with Iran, we have a full accounting of what uh, is in their program. Timetable is also important because, you know, the North Koreans are very good at drawing things out. <laughs> if they're going to try to extract concessions from us, we have to have a clear sense that there are big steps being taken. Sig Hecker, who is a, a an academic who's been studying this for a long time, estimates it could take up to 15 years wow. uh, to completely denuclearize. Is that just so it takes a long time to take apart a nuclear weapon? or what? It takes a long time to, to take apart weapons, all of the research facilities, mm-hmm. all of the uranium enrichment, plutonium facilities. I mean, it's a pretty yeah. extensive program. Yeah. Uh, keep in mind, like, Iran didn't have nuclear weapons, and the JCPOA was 159 pages. Wow, yeah. And the the nuclear agreement that the president reached uh, this week with North Korea was, what, one and a quarter page? Yeah, I think it was four index cards. Very extensive. <laughs> so, I mean, that just tells you how complicated the depth of these kinds of discussions are going to have to be. Yeah. There's been a lot of talk about the optics of the summit. Some people say that just by showing up, it's a gift to Kim. Others were offended by the backdrop of literal U.S. and North Korean flags side by side. 
there was the bizarre movie trailer style video of Trump and Kim together as the next Marvel hero duo. What do you make of the optics debate? I, I am certainly in favor of diplomacy, but is there a point where it goes a little too far and could help prop up or help someone that is a horrific dictator like this clown? Yeah, I have to admit, I mean, listen, you have to deal with your adversaries to advance your national security interests sometimes. And yeah. and it's often un- uncomfortable. It's not like we liked the Iranians all that much uh, in terms of dealing with them on the nuclear issue. Um, but you have to protect the United States. So that part is not what bothers me. I mm-hmm. think the spectacle of the situation, it was a little, I mean, I, I'll be honest, I kind of wanted to throw up as I was watching it. But it was like the me- news media sort of came in and was like O.J. Simpson style following the motorcades and, yeah. you know, they get to the palace or wherever the hell they were and do the flag thing. The flag thing really bothered me personally. It was just is definitely potentially a gift to Kim Jong-un. I think that video <laughs> that they played at the beginning of the press conference was propaganda and it was deeply disturbing to me as an American to watch it and, and to know that the White House put that together. Mm-hmm. The um, NSC. Because I know, right? I mean, can you imagine our NSC putting like who who has I don't know Final Cut Pro? Like, what what are they doing in there? I don't know who has those skill set. Do we have a video team? I don't even I don't even know if we had a video team. We had like gateway computers from 2002. I don't think we had shit. (laughs) Yeah, so they've definitely upgraded Tommy since uh, we've been there. Thank God. But you know, yeah, of course, could potentially be a propaganda victory. I think it's important to remember with Kim Jong Un, this guy has over 120,000 people currently in labor camps. You know, this is a regime that executes people, summary executions, forced abortions, rapes. You know, this is a real, this is the worst government on the planet. Right. And the North Korean, as much as we have at stake in this summit and in these discussions, the North Korean people, uh, frankly, have as much at stake. And so, yeah, it, it, was, it really bothered me. I thought it was a little over the top. Uh, I, I get the idea that he's trying to build a relationship with the guy and you've got to do a little bit of you know, some of that relationship building, but it just felt like right. he almost admired him. He kept using language about him that was just like, like almost like, hey, this is my son. And he's like a really good businessman. You know, yeah. it, it so, reminded me of like how he talks about his kids. Yeah, well, his kids are also awful. So maybe that's the connection. But oh, I mean, let's give everybody some context. Like when Madeleine Albright went to North Korea, she was hammered for raising a glass and toasting Kim Jong-il. When the Obama administration sent Bill Clinton to North Korea to bring back a couple of people, women who've been taken hostage, they made sure not to even smile in their photos with Kim Jong-un. Now, Trump was crazy over the top. He said it was an honor to meet Kim Jong-un. He said he's very talented. He has a great personality. He says he trusts him. He said, quote, his country does love him. You can see the fervor, I guess not remembering that people are literally forced to cheer with the threat of death if they aren't sufficiently... uh, enthusiastic. So on top of that, I guess he invited Kim to Washington. He said he'd visit North Korea. I mean, I'm, here's what I wonder. My default is to think, wow, this propaganda could really help him back home. But then I remember that North Korea has spent decades telling their people that America is evil and the root of all their problems and you know the person they must fight. So I guess I just struggle with how to handle something, a situation that's weird. Yeah, no, it is weird. I'm interested to see whether the North Koreans actually publish as much of the video footage and pictures from the summit in their uh, local press, which mm-hmm. is, as we all know, not a free press. Um, right. But, yeah, no, I think Kim Jong-un, you know, like his father before him and his grandfather, 
really press this idea of economic independence from the evil American-led West. Um, so it is going to be interesting to see whether Kim Jong-un really does want to open up and do a, a pretty significant strategic shift. And so, you know, you never know. Um, I just think, you know, experience is that the regime is really about one thing, its core survival. I worry that any economic opening would be just delivered to the regime friendlies in Pyongyang. So it's, you know, the president is definitely taking a risk, but it's a lot on the front end to do. Yeah. The point you made about media in North Korea was really interesting because I saw a lot of people were surprised at the North Korean media's coverage of Kim Jong-un taking a stroll through Singapore, you know, down cities that have more electricity in a night than Pyongyang has in several months. Uh, they wondered if that juxtaposition or if, if exposing people to that reality might show them a future that they want a hell of a lot more than they want to support the regime. I thought that was an interesting question. Yeah, I think it is an interesting question, although I think at the end of the day that the regime is so powerful and has consolidated so much of its security apparatus. You know, I think us our hope around sort of uprisings and things like that are, are definitely oversold. But definitely. certainly like all those – I had a real problem with the selfies with the Singaporeans. I, th- I thought that was a little bit weird to have the Singaporean foreign minister taking a selfie with Kim Jong-un and yeah. it being broadcast all over um, Singapore. But – Listen, hey, the, you know, the president is making – he's placing a bet, and we will see if the bet pays off. Posse of the World is brought to you by Blue Apron. Blue Apron is teaming up with the best-selling cookbook author Chrissy Teigen to bring you some of her favorite recipes to make at home. Get ready for six weeks of wildly fun, flavorful cooking featuring recipes like garlic and soy glazed shrimp with charred broccoli and hot green pepper sauce and sesame chicken noodles with bok choy. Did we mention you don't have to step foot in the grocery store? I don't think I did. You guys know I like Blue Apron. I use it all the time. My fiance Hannah and I, we cook it pretty regularly. It's fun to do. It's easy. It feels healthier than the crap you would get if you went out to dinner or got takeout and some, you know, kind of tub that's full of butter and ultimately is not that tasty anyway. You guys should try it. You'll enjoy doing it. You'll save money. You'll make good food. I promise. When was the last time Chrissy Teigen led you astray? Blue Apron delivers fresh pre-portioned ingredients and step-by-step recipes right to your door that can be cooked in under 45 minutes. The menu changes every week based on what's in season and is designed by Blue Apron's in-house culinary team, unless it's designed by Chrissy Teigen. Blue Apron offers 12 new recipes each week, and customers can pick two, three, or four recipes based on what best fits their schedule. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free at blueapron.com slash crookedworld. That's blueapron.com slash crookedworld to get your first three meals free. Blue Apron is a better way to cook. It is very hard for me not to compare this deal, how it's being covered, how it's being talked about to the Iran deal. So the the Iran deal, again, included very specific verification measures. They mothballed two-thirds of Iran's centrifuges. They shipped out 98% of their enriched uranium. They dumped concrete into a plutonium reactor. So like irreversible steps to slow down their program. As we discussed earlier, Trump got vague promises on a piece of paper. The Iran deal was also criticized because it didn't stop Iran from doing other bad things like supporting Hezbollah, screwing around in Syria, holding hostages in Iran. Trump, by contrast, seems to have raised none of the other issues that are out there. Like he barely talked about human rights. 
I'm trying to figure out how to talk about this comparison without my head exploding uh, and the interview (laughs) abruptly ending. How do you feel? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely unfair. I think, you know, the standard, what's interesting is that he he set the standard of JCPOA on himself. (laughs) Right. By going out and saying it was the worst deal ever, uh, we're going to get a better deal. Now, if you notice, the president's using language on Iran that's like, oh, the Iranian leaders, everything is, they're improving, they're not yeah. doing as many bad things in the region, which is like, what are you what talking, talking about? about who's, your, who's your PDB briefer? Right. <laughs> um, like, they should be fired, John Bolton. Um, but, you know, it's clear to me that his advisors are telling him, your sort of reckless decisions are, are yielding results. And if he feels that way about Iran, and it clearly, as of this morning on North Korea, like, he clearly feels like he delivered a really good deal, and everything's going to be fine now. And he's got a personal relationship with Kim Jong-un. Like, <laughs> I kind of want to, as I told you the other day, I'm like ready to like lose my mind. Yeah. Um, and then the coverage of it is, of course, um, interesting as well from the media. So. Yeah. I mean, and like, you know, I'm sure the press will come around to sort of talking about the fact that his promises certainly haven't been delivered on. But it, it makes me insane when you see people like fucking Tom Cotton, who's a just a hack U.S. senator from Arkansas saying, well, you know, I was opposed to talking to Iran because they didn't have nukes, but I support talking to North Korea because they do have nukes. And that's a different kind of problem, which, you know, just incentivizes literally everyone in the world to get some nukes and they'll be ready to negotiate with us. But there are less horrendous people than Tom Cotton make equally bad faith arguments, right? Like the Iran deal was criticized as weak because it had sunset provisions that ended some of the restrictions in 10 or 15 years. Trump lands in the United States and declares that the whole thing is solved (laughs) and no one is attacking him for that. And like the reason, like obviously this drives me crazy because I am an Obama person and I support the Iran deal, like no doubt. But it's also like these bad faith arguments get picked up by the mainstream press And it's going to hurt Democrats and prevent them from trying to conduct diplomacy because it's always going to be criticized as weak and is always going to push us towards the most hawkish militarized response. You know, like that's what's driving me nuts. Yes. I mean, the other thing is, like, let's be honest, there's a lot of differing views in the Democratic Party about this deal and and this whole process on North Korea. And, you know, there is a a Senate letter that uh, went out, Senator Schumer and uh, some of the ranking members really kind of like a very detailed letter about what a good deal with North Korea should be and what should be contained in it. And there was a lot of criticism around it by some folks um, within the party as being kind of, oh, well, you were for the Iran deal, but you're going to hold the president to a different standard. I actually think, like, nobody else is holding the president to any standard. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And so, like, it's not that, you know, of course Democrats support diplomacy with North Korea. <laughs> but, like, it has to be good diplomacy mm-hmm. and it has to yield an outcome that is a good outcome for the national security of the United States. That's sh- our North star should be that this deal and whatever comes out of it improves the national security of the United States and its allies. That has to be our North star regardless yeah. of party. And what I fear is that everyone's so eager to embrace the process of diplomacy, which I am too, that, that we would lose sight of the fact that this could end up in a very bad place. So you know, it's a fine line, and I, I understand there's arguments on all sides, and but it's it's essential that, you know, the president is held accountable now. We should be supportive of what they do. We have to be realistic about the outcome. I do not think we're going to end up necessarily with all nuclear weapons coming out of North Korea. 
Um, so I think we have to be realistic, but we certainly shouldn't be absent from the conversation. Yeah, we have a harder job because our argument is more complicated. And the thing that makes this all easier for Trump is he has no right flank, right? Breitbart is never going to criticize him for anything he does. Fox News will literally never criticize him for anything he does. And attacks from the right from Democrats never seem to be taken seriously by the mainstream media when they're on Republicans just because no one is used to that. So you literally have staffers sitting in the White House like uh, a woman named Mercedes Schlapp, who is like a top communications person who attacked Barack Obama for shaking hands with Raul Castro and said, who's next, Kim Jong-un, although she was too stupid to get his name right, and I think she called him Kim Un-Jong. But you know, this person now works for Trump and is out there selling everything he's doing with North Korea. And so it's tough because, like again, like we want him to be talking. We don't want him to be bombing anybody. But the hypocrisy is just so glaring, and it doesn't seem like the full story will ever get told or there will be no accountability or no one to hold him to account for actually getting done the things he said he's going to get done. See the idea, yeah. the, the verifiable denuclearization. Yes. And we tend to like to call in airstrikes on our own, own positions. So um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> listen, yeah. I, I mean, I the way I look at this uh, and I've been telling you know friends of mine who are involved in this, you know, we should be holding President Trump and the team to the standard that we would hold ourselves to if we were negotiating this. Right. You know, like that's what should be guiding us in this. That's a good, honest way to do it and a good place to end. Kelly, thank you for setting me straight, (laughs) allowing me to vent uh, and helping me understand what the hell happened. I totally want to vent more, man. (laughs) What else you got? Fill me in. I don't know. I'm just... It's been a rough week. Yeah. G7. Who knew the G7 summit was going to be the controversial one? <laughs> I mean, can we just talk about there for one second? I mean, just a, a quick note of context, right? So the North Korean News Service released uh, their readout or their take on what happened in the private talks with Kim Jong-un and Trump and uh, the broader set of meetings. And they said that Trump was moving a lot faster on, on sanctions relief than he said. If Justin Trudeau had given a readout like that, that somehow contradicted Trump, Trump would be savaging him. But when Kim Jong-un does it, everything is hunky-dory, right? I mean, it is completely bizarre that everything they said about Obama, that he was hard on his allies and coddled his adversaries, is actually literally true of Trump. And I don't know how to understand that or, or internalize it in any way. Yeah. I mean, my overall observation of this foreign policy week <laughs> between the G7 summit and the North Korea summit uh, is that we just feel very unmoored from our democratic values. And I don't understand how to explain the president's perspective on this because I just can't internalize it. But he is just much more comfortable dealing with authoritarians. He's just more comfortable talking to guys that he thinks are in charge. They don't have to worry about democratic process. It's a strange. I'm not a psychologist, but (laughs) there's definitely something behind this. You're totally right. I mean, you see it in North Korea and people say, hey, what do you think about Kim Jong-un? imprisoning hundreds of thousands of people in concentration camps, starving millions of people. He's like, look, he's a rough guy, but that's in the past. When it comes to uh, bringing Russia back into the G8, getting the G7 to the G8, he seems ready and willing to move on from the fact that they invaded Crimea. They invaded a part of Ukraine. He seems to not care about things that happened before him as long as they benefit him, which is a troubling place to be. I mean, history can't begin with his inauguration. Totally agree. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> that's a depressing place to end, but we might as well end there. Kelly, 
thank you so much for what you're doing. Thanks for the work you guys are doing over at CAP, the Center for American Progress. Everyone should check it out. Check out the website because you're doing smart things on foreign policy, domestic policy. You're one of the uh, the key think tanks that the party has. So we appreciate all the work you guys are doing. Thanks, Tommy. Keep it up out there, too. We'll try here in uh, Los Angeles. It's very hard to find a good uh, acai bowl, but, you know, the struggle continues. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Max. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.